Have you ever noticed your iPhone starting to slow down? Maybe the battery gets a bit hotter. Right around the same time that Apple announced a brand new iPhone. Is it planned? Is Apple slowing your phone down to encourage you to buy a new one? Because that is the theory that's been floating around for a very long time. And this week on Download This Show, we're going to pick it apart. Also, imagine a world without news on Google or Facebook, because that could very well be a reality. Other countries have done it, so how does it play out for them and what could it mean for us? And Twitter. Are they potentially just a little too good at dealing with sketchy content on their platform? Never thought I'd say that. Uh, Let's get into it. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And joining us from her home, or what I'm told is a gimp closet, but maybe that's just my interpretation of it, uh, the National Technology Editor for News Corporation, Jan Dudley-Nicholson. Welcome back. It's been far too long. It has been yonks, but I appreciate you having me back in my tiny cupboard. Tiny I cupboard. I appreciate that. I should stop calling it the gimp closet. Uh, and joining Please. us from Gizmodo and Business Insider, Cameron Wilson. Welcome back. Hi, good to be back. I'm not in a gimp closet. I'm at the top of the stairs in a share house. You know what? It's it's gimp closet-esque. It's essence of gimp. <laughs> right now, some of the world's biggest tech behemoths are at war with the Australian uh, consumer watchdog, the ACCC, over essentially who pays for news. And indeed, uh, some of the big tech companies, Facebook in particular, have threatened to remove news entirely from their Australian service if these new laws roll out. But In the mix of that, you have to imagine, what would that actually look like? Like, what would an Australian internet experience look like if you couldn't access news on Google and if you couldn't access it on Facebook? Well, there's been some new research that's come out that has imagined that world. And one of the ideas they've put up is the idea that an organisation like the ABC setting up their own social network for news. Uh, Firstly, (laughs) I have so many thoughts. Uh, Where did this, this bit of research, this idea actually come from, Cameron? So it came from a think tank that prepared a report essentially being like, what are we going to do if, like you said, Facebook and Google decide to pull out in response to um, the ACCC's, you know, the Australian Consumer Watchdog, what's going to happen if they um, input their their news media bargaining code and force the news publisher, uh, enforce the tech giants to pay news publishers directly? This report kind of looks at, well, what's actually going to happen? How are we actually going to deal with things if they do end up essentially pulling out of the market altogether, saying that, hey, um, we don't want to offer news anymore, which is something that they have, um, they threatened to do. So, essentially what what happened is they put out this report being like, let's imagine a world and specifically in Australia where we don't have these on, um, on, where we don't have news on our social networks. And one of the suggestions was the ABC launching its own uh, Facebook equivalent, which trust me, as someone who's worked in the ABC and now who is not you know, bound by their social media rules. I can totally say that the, a lot of the ABC's internal systems are not that good. So um, I'm not too crash hot on this idea, but it was one of the, I guess, kind of things that they floated and being like, how could we imagine a world where we didn't have Facebook and Google producing news, providing news in Australia? If this pie was any higher in the sky, it would be in <laughs> orbit. Jen, we'll come back to the ABC social networking a little bit later, but I just want to talk about this image of of what Australia would look like if if Google and Facebook, particularly Facebook, made good on their threat to remove news. Like, what would the impact likely be in Australia? 
it would be bad, um, essentially. Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of implications that, that come with this, but a lot of people actually, and regrettably, potentially, um, get their, their news um, from social media. And a lot of people even do that as their primary source of, of news, which is a little bit concerning for a number of other reasons. Um, but if that news was then not verified, if that was just, you know, reported by, you know, randoms and, and your crazy uncle and aunt and, and whomever, um, then potentially it wouldn't be it wouldn't be of a very um, sort of valuable nature. The chefs, the chefs in chief of, of the medical world spreading more misinformation um, and it could have a potentially really bad um, impact on the likes of Facebook. So Facebook could make this decision to kind of spite its face, essentially. Just one quick question on that. I, I've seen conflicting reports about whether or not Google would remove Google News. Have you got any clarity on that? Google haven't made a direct threat. Facebook has made a direct threat, um, not just to remove Australian news, but all forms of news. And we don't exactly know the definition of that. Google early on in the piece made a, a very public campaign about saying, you know, this potentially puts our free services under threat. And that was as far as they went. So it was still a little bit vague. We don't have a complete picture of, of what Google are going to do if they don't like what is in this um, media bargaining code. Um, so we don't know exactly, even though this report said it was likely that they could remove news from their platform in Australia. Um, what we do have that kind of gives us a hint that they might do it is that in Spain they did something similar. So um, Spain actually went down a copyright path instead of a competition path. Um, and they said that, you know, you have to pay publishers based on the copyright. And so they just removed all of the, the, the links, all of the descriptions um, from Spanish news on their service. And as a result, over time, um, things kind of stabilised for a lot of publishers. So people actually went directly to the publishers instead of, you know, looking for, for their news on Facebook. So that was kind of interesting. And that's mentioned in the report. However, Facebook, uh, sorry, Google in Australia haven't actually threatened directly to remove news. So it'll be interesting. And I guess it, it depends on, on what is actually in this, this final um, proposition. Yeah, the comparison to Spain is a complicated one because there are a bunch of reports that have come out over the last few years. I think they did it in 2014. And as you said, and, and basically the, the effect seemed to be negligible. But I feel like in this instance, the effect of removing Google news and then the effect of removing all news from Facebook would be very different, Cam, because I feel like Facebook is a far better, it's, it's a different kind of traffic, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, when Google presents news, it's often when you're searching for news and you'll see, you know, the headlines kind of pop up, or if you're just searching any kind of term, uh, it'll tell you the latest news. Facebook is that more, we're serving it to you algorithmically, uh, and then more of the focus on, you know, the people who you're following, you know, their shares. So, you know, you incidentally come across stuff, whether you're following, you know, the ABC, for example, or some of your friends sharing it. I'm also kind of skeptical about the idea that, um, you know, that things wouldn't, that, that people would just adapt to uh, not having news served to them through Facebook and Google. I mean, 2014, I mean, in, you know, digital terms feels like an eon ago. So much has changed. We've generally seen, um, you know, more kind of independent news sources pop up, many of them not very legitimate. Um, so I guess I kind of wonder, particularly as well, like, I think it's the University of Canberra does a digital media report every year, and it's like a staggeringly high number of people get their news, um, often primarily from Facebook. And I really wonder, like, if you just took it out of the, out of Facebook, if you decided to stop serving them ABC articles, whatever, 
I don't think that they'd probably notice. I think that they would just continue using their social media feeds and just be served up something else that's kind of engaging. So I guess, you know, my, I guess, I, I'm kind of like, I wonder if what will happen is they'll just take that news out of the diet and then people will just not have that anymore rather than actively ser- like searching out for it. I also think one of the com- confusing factors here is is we we lack a proper definition of what news actually is. Like... And and certainly, like flicking through the the paperwork that has been made available for for this proposed new law, Jen, it doesn't seem overly clear what falls into that definition. No, and I think the AZZ's version of what news is will be quite broad because it's it's kind of a catch-all. Um, and I personally wonder: are Snopes links news? Like I, I often post them underneath kind of the worst stuff that is shared on my Facebook feed, just to kind of you know refute the claims. But, I mean, that involves factual reporting. And so technically, by definition, that's news. And then you start to get into video as well. And so some of the video reports from, you know, the major TV networks, um, they would qualify as news. And so would therefore podcasts fall into news as well? It becomes really murky as to how much stuff you actually have to remove from the platform. Um, And when you think about Facebook, moderation is not a strong point necessarily for them like they have enough problems with that already and so removing a lot of this stuff um, could remove things that aren't necessarily falling into the news category or maybe it won't remove too much and then they'll have to end up paying the ACCC or sorry or the Australian government and publishers um, it becomes yeah a, a really complicated thing much more complicated than it just looks on the surface what would what do you think the definition should look like Cam <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. I feel like it's above my pay, pay grade. But I, I, <laughs> if I knew, I would tell the ACCC. Um, <laughs> I, I will say that I, when Facebook came out and said, hey, if you do this, ACCC, if you decide to force us to pay for news content, we will ban news. Um, I went to Facebook and said, hey, like, I kind of asked these questions, you know, what's news? Is news, is it a web link? Is it me posting text from a website on my personal Facebook? Is it an Instagram post, a a picture from a news photographer? And essentially what they put back to me was, hey, the ACCC hasn't been that clear. We're just working with what they've given us. So essentially passing, you know, the buck back to them. And the point is being unclear about it. One is to make people kind of scared about these potential rules, but two, to point out that the ACCC hasn't clearly defined it yet. Now, I mean, I guess part of this is that this bargaining code is still being worked out. You know, they've gone back for consultation. They're currently working on the legislation that they're going to bring to um, the parliament. So, you know, to some extent, you know, you don't really expect them to have all the answers straight away. But the whole point, and this is what the, the tech giants are really trying to push, is that there's uncertainty. We don't know what it is. Um, and so, you know, you should kind of be scared about how this could affect it because we don't know how bad it could be. I think that Facebook made a much more direct threat. Um, I'm not sure if people are necessarily scared by that, but just kind of bemused and, and sitting back and watching what the hell site does next. Um, but Google's Google's approach was so much more interesting because they actually kind of made it into this campaign against, you know, the, the big bad Australian government who are coming to take away um, your, your money as an influencer. So they really targeted not just Australian YouTube creators, but um, overseas as well. And they produce videos and now there's comedians doing videos as well and all against this code. So without making direct threats, they kind of tried to, um, I, I guess, yeah, get an uprising happening um, against this code. And I'm not 
really sure that succeeded so much. There was definitely um, some interest from um, some people who, who thought, well, you know, the news producers are going to get a bit of a benefit on top of us in, in the algorithm stakes. And so, you know, potentially this could affect my income as a, you know, a renowned unboxing video star. Um, I'm not going to be able to play with as many toys on video anymore. Um, however, it wasn't really made clear. And the, that's, I, I'm not sure, that seems kind of dubious um, under the, the guidelines of the code, by the way. Um, so I'm not really sure that it worked as well as they'd hoped, particularly because they've not just been advertising this on the main page of Google, but advertising it on Twitter and Reddit and paying for ads on all of these different services. I'm not sure it provided them with bang for buck, which is perhaps ironic. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have Jennifer Dudley Nicholson, National Technology Editor with News Corporation, and Cam Wilson with Business Insider and Gizmodo. Mark Fennell is my name. And Twitter have uh, changed their policy in the wake of something that's happened with uh, the US election, particularly involving Joe Biden and his son. Cam, what have they changed? Um, so they have uh, changed the way that they deal with leaked materials. So, I mean, walking back, there was an article posted uh, or, or published, I should say, in the New York Post uh, last week that essentially was, we have these files, apparently they're from a computer uh, repair person who says that someone who he couldn't see because he has a medical condition uh, that stops him from being able to tell people's identities um, dropped off laptops. Those laptops had uh, stickers belonging to the foundation that Joe Biden's son, his charity foundation, because I believe he died. And on these on these laptops is kind of these uh, emails and documents that essentially uh, allegedly shows corruption by Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and therefore Joe Biden as well. And I guess the kind of important thing to say is that, you know, these have really not been verified. And in fact, they've kind of, they've had a lot of doubts cast on whether they're true or not. But what kind of happened is once they came out, um, they, uh, once this article came out, they, um, the social networks decided to take a stance on them because these were leaked materials and, and leaked materials in the past have uh, had a big um, influence on things like the US election. Like <laughs> yes. we would remember uh, like WikiLeaks in 2016 with um, Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, and so in the fault, like following that, there was a lot of criticism about, well, how these social networks have allowed, um, people with, uh, to essentially leak materials to kind of essentially like, you know, sway elections or, or kind of have some, um, have, have some, you know, influence on, on public policy. And the accusation is that there's an incentive for like state-based actors. So, you know, governments and, and their teams of hackers, if they have them, uh, to, you know, hack political opponents and then give that information to the press who then kind of uh, will, will publish it and that will sway elections. So there's, there's all that and people have said, well, like maybe Facebook and Twitter need to do something more, you know, they've been responsible for it. So what happened when um, the New York Post published this article was that Facebook and Twitter kind of in a, in a, in a, in a I guess a first at this scale, took action about it. Twitter initially, um, what they did was they actually stopped people altogether from sharing the article. So if you try to share it, you know, if you're a legit journalist who said, I don't know if this is legit or not, you want to share it, it would actually stop you. Whereas Facebook had said, uh, hey, we, we think this it comes under our leaked materials policy. And so because of that, we are essentially making, you know, you can still publish it, but we will severely downrank it in our algorithm, which means that not many people will see it. So all that happened is quite a lot to initially um, <laughs> get, get your head around. Um, but kind of as you could probably expect, there was a lot of backlash from conservative media and politicians. The New York Post was very upset about it. 
a lot of um, not very uh, reputable people were also not very uh, were pretty upset about it. Um, you know, accusing Twitter of uh, specifically and also Facebook as well of censoring um, what is you know what they thought was a, a real big scoop. Um, and so, following that, Twitter has kind of reflected on it and done a backflip as they are often doing. And they've said that we will allow um, hacked materials that are in like an article to be posted on Twitter, but we will put a kind of label on it, but we also still won't allow hackers to directly post stuff on Twitter. Did right. you follow that? There is a lot. <laughs> no, no, that was very good. I feel like at the end of that, I should be like, and that's what you missed on Glee. Um, but Jen, <laughs> there's an interesting point in here and I'd like to kind of pull it out a little bit, which is, does this constitute legitimately a form of censorship? I mean, whenever you hide a reply um, on Twitter, then potentially that's a form of censorship too. I mean, you're, you're sort of stopping people from seeing something because it's ridiculous. At the moment, I'm being targeted by a bunch of Roblox noobs who keep posting the same word underneath all of my tweets. And I censor those because they're stupid. Um, <laughs> and so I think that Twitter was, if we look at the intent, Twitter was trying to do the right thing here because obviously there's been a problem with hacked materials in the past, not only with the likes of, of WikiLeaks, but also potentially less serious things like, you know, um, celebrity iCloud leaks and those sorts of things. And there's there's legitimate reasons for stopping the sharing of content. Um, and you could call that censorship. You could call that stopping celebrity chefs from spreading misinformation. Um, but I think the real problem here was that Twitter didn't fully explain what it was doing and why it was doing it. Um, and so lots of people had to find out later that it was because of this hacked materials policy that it had. Um, the idea that they they could potentially label it now, like the labels are quite full on. They're, they're a lot of the labels that they're putting on things like Donald Trump's occasional um, yeah misfires and, and, and tweets and stuff um, will go over the entire tweet and you actually have to click through in order to be able to see it. And I think that's a really interesting way to do it because you're you're not censoring it entirely, but at the same time you're giving people a warning that you really need to view this with scepticism because I think some people for some people their BS filters just are a little bit on the fritz. Um, so to give people you know a second thought and a second chance. To, to really have a think about what's being put forward, I think is a good idea. Um, and it avoids that sort of, yeah, the, the, the idea that a company is, is censoring the information that you're putting out there. Cam, as a hypothetical, if uh, a news organisation were to get a bunch of leaked footage of, say, an atrocity happening with Australian soldiers in, in Afghanistan, just as a pure hypothetical, not a thing that's happened at all recently, and there was an article put out online on socials about that, would that attract a warning from from twitter i cannot honestly say because it has gone back and forth so much my understanding is that if your article doesn't actually include any of the actual content that is suspected to have been like hacked and and specifically it's like not just like um kind of confidential stuff that's being leaked because obviously that makes up a lot of journalism, but it's specifically things that have been kind of hacked, this idea of, you know, document dumps, that kind of thing, that if, if that had been, say, you know, a, a, you know someone had hacked uh, the ADF and had got that, then potentially, but then under these new rules, it wouldn't be because, uh, under Twitter's new rules, it wouldn't be because they said, you know, a, pr a primary news um, article is fine, uh, as long as it's kind of, um, you know, from a, a, coming back to it, a, like a reputable news outlet. Um, and whereas if it was a hacker, say, you know, they decide to upload it themselves, 
um, that would be um, that would be removed. I mean, it's extremely kind of complicated, and and I think you know. I guess it just feels like, and you know, Twitter has this thing where it, out of all the social networks, it feels like the most tortured one by its <laughs> own, like the weight of its decisions. It's, it's yeah. constantly like, um, you know, it, it is more, I would say, reactive to um, public uh, attention and criticism than something like Facebook. Like, you know, Facebook up until recently has allowed, um, you know, Holocaust denial. And, and that was for years and years. And that was actually something that they brought up as a proof that like, hey, we're, we're protecting free speech. Twitter has been kind of more of a, you know, we are more responsive to these things. We're more likely to take things down. Uh, and, and also just in the way that they deal with problems. They're a lot more transparent about it. They're often like, this is why we made this decision. You know, this kind of almost this discourse, which, you know, like, look, you, you love to see it in regards to, you know, changing your opinion. But when they're backflipping like all the time and it constantly feels like this, you almost wonder, and I hate to say this as a journalist who hopes that they can have an influence and stuff, but you almost wonder if they would be better off kind of in the court of public opinion if they stuck to their guns rather than being like, oh, you know, we're so sorry we've made this mistake over and over again. So, look, like Jack Dorsey is very public about his, uh, I guess, ruminations about policy. But I, I guess, you know, it's it's not super comforting when you're like, oops, I made a mistake again when you're dealing with something that's got to do with, like, you know, US election policy. Uh, look, I actually appreciate that Twitter is trying. Like, in, for example, back, back in, I think it was May, um, when uh, Trump was talking about, it was tweeting specifically and, and posting to Facebook um, about, you know, a massive US mail fraud, election mail fraud and, and that sort of stuff. Twitter was the company who came out and tried to put labels on it first up. And and Mark Zuckerberg kind of stood back and said, ah, I don't think we're going to, you know, um, take any notice of that until everyone within his company and then outside his company said, no, you really need to pay attention to that sort of stuff. We need to do something, whether it's taking it down or censoring it in some way. So I appreciate that Twitter is actually being reactive a bit and, and trying things. As to whether they got it right in this case, maybe not, but I think we all learn something. Um, <laughs> Valuable life and, lessons were learned. And, and I actually, like, social media, the, the, the problems with social media are not transparent, are not straightforward. Um, the, this whole idea of moderation, it, there's a whole lot of, it, it might just be one big grey area, to be honest. Um, so for them to kind of try something, I'm actually supportive of it. Even if they get it wrong a few times on either side of politics, I think potentially we could end up with something better at the end of it. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name, uh, joined by Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson from News Corp and Cam Wilson from Business Insider and Gizmodo. And when Apple announce a brand new product, a new iPhone or a, a new iPad, many, many, many people have emailed us over the years to say the moment they announce a brand new product, my old device that I have in my pocket starts to slow down. And I'm wondering, is it planned obsolescence? Are they sending a message to my phone saying, you should die now? So they start buying a new one. And I thought it might be fun to actually like dig into that conspiracy and, and work out if there's any truth in it. So Jen, uh, is there any truth to the notion that there is a planned obsolescence built into to iPhones that they start to slow down, overheat, die just at the moment that they announce a brand new one? Is it true? I really love this idea that um, Tim Cook is like some Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget figure. And then, <laughs> with like, his, like you know, gentle release southern the iPhones, <laughs> Release the iPhones <laughs> with one button and then kill the old iPhones <laughs> with the other button. 
Um, look, Apple is a, is a $2 trillion company. So theory one, it makes sense that they got all of these riches by just yeah using this magic kill switch to kill off all the old iPhones. However, um, theory two is that they're a $2 trillion company because they produce devices that a lot of people want and maybe they don't need to be pulling that sort of stuff and potentially putting them in, in massive jeopardy in terms of lawsuits. Um, it's interesting that this one comes up. I mean, there's a lot of crazy technology conspiracies. This is potentially one of them. I think some of the things it's fueled by is that you see a new device and it looks really amazing. And then you look at your old device and you go, yeah, I've had this for ages and it's got some cracks in the screen and everything runs slowly on it. And just because I've got 2000 apps on it, suddenly they're not all loading immediately. Um, I think that there's there's a little bit of that playing into everything here. Um, and there's also the idea that normally around the iPhone launch time, you also get a new batch of software that comes out as well. So iOS 14 came out, although maybe a couple of weeks before the iPhones were announced. Um, and potentially when you load that onto your old device, it might be a bit too old for that. It might not have indexed all of your 2000 apps, as I mentioned. Um, things might slow down for a little bit and then just fuel the conspiracy nuts. So that's an interesting idea, Cam, the idea that the, it's, it's the operating system that, that's been updated and that means everything that you've got running on your phone sort of needs to, to re-index. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I mean, with these new uh, like software updates that come out all the time with iPhone, with Android, uh, you know, it, it's often like there's quite a lot of new code in it. They're doing new things, sometimes more complex things as well. And so particularly if you have an older phone, maybe some software that was, you know, designed for it specifically, but then has kind of become um, outdated, you know, it doesn't have the, the same horsepower to run it. I think the other thing is that like, I don't know how much people know this, but, you know, most phones are all the time, they are essentially, you know, they are deciding how fast the kind of internal parts will go. Like, it's not like it's all the time at 100%. All the time your phone is kind of being like, well, you need, you know, this much horsepower, so I'm going to take this much, um, you know, energy from the battery, or you don't need this much, and so I'm going to slow it down. One thing we do know is that one of the reasons that phones slow down as they kind of get older, specifically with iPhones, is because, well, the the phones, because they're super, you know, they're pretty smart, they're pretty complex. They know that your battery capacity, which kind of gets worse and worse um, over its life naturally, they know that that is not doing as well. So what they do is they make your phone a bit slower because the idea is that, well, even if the battery isn't quite as good as it once was, by slowing it down, you'll still get pretty good battery life. So, you know, there are all these things that happen under the surface that we're not really aware of that, you know, if you don't really understand, you might just kind of chalk up as a superstitious, like, oh, they're trying to get me to buy a new phone. Do you think, Jen, they should have more functions for you to control that or at the very least be more aware of what's going on inside your phone? Yeah, I do like some of the functions that we're seeing now around, you know, where you can test the battery health of your phone, for example. Um, I mean, as Cam says, like there are different functions that, that Apple uses to kind of control multitasking and control battery life and those sorts of things. And there's not a lot of clarity around those. Like you might not know that it's actually happening. Um, I think that Apple could probably benefit from being a bit more open as well about um, what phones shouldn't actually be downloading the latest software because every year... 
like you'll see new software come out, a new generation of iPhones come out, and maybe if you're, you know, four or five years behind, maybe you actually shouldn't be doing any of those updates. And so having those sorts of warnings, I think, would be would be really quite nice. Because it's not transparent at all. You don't really know. You just think that, you know, the ghost of Steve Jobs is, is making you slower, <laughs> uh, whereas they're actually just, um, they're just trying to make some tough decisions. All right, that is it for the show this week. Cam Wilson from Gizmodo and Business Insider. Thanks so much for coming back on Download the Show. Thanks for having me. Uh, enjoy sitting on the top of your stairs for the rest of the day. <laughs> My housemates can get past now. <laughs> okay, good, good. And Dan Dudley-Nicholson live from the, uh, the Gimp Closet. Uh, thank you so much for being back on the show. It was a real joy to have you here. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jan Dudley-Nicholson is the National Technology Editor for News Corporation. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review. Uh, This is a special shout-out for the person on Twitter that says it's weird the way Mark ends the show. My name has been and will continue to be Mark Fennell. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Download This Show.